some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Cold War espionage defendants, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Now let's begin our story about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. On July 17, 1950, in New York City, Julius Rosenberg was arrested by the FBI on suspicion of espionage. Less than a month later, on August 11th, his wife Ethel was also arrested after she took the Fifth Amendment before a grand jury investigating the matter. Their sensational 1951 trial highlighted by Ethel's own brother providing damaging testimony that ensured their conviction, resulted in death sentences for both Rosenbergs. For two years, a worldwide debate ensued over the guilt and fate of this couple. Were they traitorous atom spies who betrayed the secret of the atom bomb to Joseph Stalin? Or were they innocent victims of a hysterical Cold War anti-Semitic frame-up orchestrated by the FBI and the American judicial system. Like most historical controversies, the answer lies somewhere between these two extremes. But the process that placed the Rosenbergs on death row at Sing Sing Prison remains a controversial example of what is not supposed to happen in an allegedly democratic society governed by integrity and the rule of law. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg began their lives as two of the most unlikely individuals to ever acquire their eventual high-profile notoriety. Julius's immigrant father, Harry, worked in the garment district, providing his family with a better-than-average income that allowed the Rosenbergs to live a lifestyle marginally better than many of their Lower East Side counterparts. His mother, also an immigrant from Eastern Europe, was an illiterate homemaker who took care of Julius and his four siblings. Quite serious, even as a teenager, Julius was a good enough student to consider rabbinical studies. A high school graduate at 16, he eventually settled on engineering, enrolling at the City College of New York. Politically aware, he also became active in several associations associated with the Communist Party, especially the Young Communist League. Although unheard of today, at the height of the Depression, many Americans openly embraced communism and the Soviet Union as an ideal, attitudes motivated by disillusionment with American capitalism and the economic hardship experienced by most Americans. Ethel Greenglass came from a similar Lower East Side background as her eventual husband, her father working in the sewing machine repair shop on the ground floor beneath the family apartment. Three years older than Julius, they met as a result of their political interests and involvement in the Young Communist League. Ethel was an aspiring actress and singer from a young age and was preparing to perform on New Year's Eve 1936 at a union benefit that Julius also attended. After an introduction from a friend, Ethel agreed to Julius's request to walk her home, and from then on, the couple was inseparable. Although Ethel shared Julius's political passion and leftist beliefs, she was also practical and felt that her boyfriend's focus on political activity was interfering with his ability to graduate with a college degree. She encouraged him to spend time at her family apartment, and while it took an extra semester, Julius did graduate from CCNY in 1939 with a degree in electrical engineering. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were subsequently married on June 18, 1939, in a modest synagogue ceremony, although neither were particularly devout. They spent the next year in an assortment of different residences without any employment stability until Julius was hired as a civilian employee of the Army Signal Corps. 
promoted in 1942, his job as an engineer inspector of electrical parts allowed Julius and Ethel to move into their first real residence in the Knickerbocker Village, a huge federally subsidized housing project on the Lower East Side. The position also allowed for an automatic exemption from the draft, as Rosenberg's training and job posting was considered essential to the war effort. The next few years were critical in what subsequently transpired in the lives of the Rosenbergs. Ethel gave birth to their first child, Michael, in 1943. Although described by their contemporaries at the time as committed communists, it is clear that the Rosenbergs began to withdraw from their usual political activities. With a job that would be jeopardized should any serious political affiliation with communism come to light, and with a demanding work schedule and growing family obligations, it seems quite feasible that Julius and Ethel deliberately scaled back such provocative activities. After his initial hiring by the Signal Corps in 1942, Julius experienced issues about both his and his wife's political activities when a routine government background check unearthed that Ethel signed a communist-sponsored petition in 1939 and that the couple briefly shared an apartment with documented communists. In hearings about the matter, Julius evasively claimed that he and his wife did not discuss politics and that she signed the petition as a favor for a neighbor. He denied that his wife was a communist and was not asked directly if he himself was a member of the Communist Party. The matter was dropped, and the Rosenbergs would avoid any official scrutiny until late 1944. Initially, the FBI discovered a copy of a Communist Party membership card belonging to a Julius Rosenberg and turned it over to Army Intelligence during Julius's 1942 inquiry. With no visible address, the card could not be specifically tied to any particular Julius Rosenberg. But when a second card with specific address information indicating membership in a specific New York City communist organization was unearthed in late 1944, another investigation ensued. As a result, Julius Rosenberg was fired from the Signal Corps. Another more sinister motive for the Rosenberg's sudden retreat from their previous political activities was the understanding that any individual involved in clandestine espionage efforts on behalf of the Soviet Union was routinely severed from any American communist entities. In Julius Rosenberg's case, it was proven that even his subscription to the Daily Worker was suddenly canceled after many years of consumption. While the Rosenberg's withdrawal at the time was noted out of curiosity by some of their political associates, subsequently it would be used to reinforce the assertion that the Rosenberg's were involved in espionage. However, for the moment, Julius Rosenberg got a new job with Emerson Radio and avoided any additional government or law enforcement scrutiny. The chain of events that eventually ensnared the Rosenbergs began when Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was drafted into the U.S. Army in April of 1943. David was essentially Ethel's kid brother, 17 when his sister got married. After graduation from high school, he enrolled in Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute, but flunked out after only one semester. A succession of jobs, all brief, ensued. He was fired from a phone company position after only three months, most likely as a result of attempting to organize his fellow workers. Exposed to Julius Rosenberg as a teenager, David initially greatly respected his brother-in-law, frequently discussing politics and reading the numerous books and political tracts that Julius provided. As a result, he became an avowed communist. Like his sister Ethel, David also became involved in a relationship that eventually led to marriage at a young age. His wife, Ruth, was a Lower East Side neighbor that he met at an early age. They married in November of 1942. David was 20, Ruth 18. Much of their urgency revolved around David's inevitable induction into the military, which did occur shortly after the marriage. Although his employment history was inconsistent, Greenglass was a trained machinist. The Army, desperate for anyone who could repair equipment, assigned him to a series of statewide postings, allowing him to avoid actual combat. By 1944, David Greenglass was eager to be shipped overseas. The boredom of American Army post life and the willingness to share in the glory of actual combat, highly motivational. 
Having spent most of his service in California, Greenglass was ordered to what he believed to be a transit point in Jackson, Mississippi. All but six of the individuals in Greenglass's battalion were shipped overseas. Greenglass and the other five men were inexplicably ordered to report to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. In fact, David Greenglass was the last individual involved in this transfer, a last-minute replacement for another soldier who had gone AWOL. But Greenglass didn't know that, his disappointment underlined by his subsequent claim to his wife that the deployment was the result of anti-Semitism and his outspoken leftist beliefs. This arbitrary assignment was to have fateful consequences, as Oak Ridge was an integral part of the U.S. effort to construct an atomic bomb and the designated location where uranium was being converted for construction of potential atomic weapons. But the Army quickly assigned David Greenglass to an even more top-secret location, Los Alamos, New Mexico. Los Alamos was the actual site where atomic weapon experimentation and the assembly of the atomic bombs occurred. David Greenglass arrived at this facility on August 6, 1944. He received a security clearance by both lying, omitting membership in the Young Communist League, and passing the perfunctory investigation conducted by the FBI. Although he was circumspect in his letters, David Greenglass's wife eventually determined where he was and mentioned some basic information to her brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg. It did not take long for Julius Rosenberg to understand exactly what David Greenglass was involved with. Although the exact date and circumstances of his recruitment are debatable, it is clear that Julius Rosenberg was already in contact with the KGB. Alexander Feklasov a Soviet secret agent working out of New York's Soviet consulate and Rosenberg's most substantial KGB contact, stated later that Julius was brought to the attention of the KGB as early as September of 1942. Feklasov would have been familiar with even the most minimal description of David Greenglass's New Mexico posting. Soviet intelligence already was aware of the Manhattan Project and had even designated an intelligence name for this particular facility. David Greenglass managed to string together five days of leave in November of 1944 and met his wife in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Before she left New York, she spoke with her brother-in-law, Julius, who urged her to convince her husband to reveal any important information about the project he was working on. By then, possibly through his Russian handlers, Julius Rosenberg generally understood the basics of the Los Alamos project and the atomic weapons intended for manufacture. Although Ruth was reluctant to get involved, Ethel suggested that they let David make up his own mind. Julius also provided additional cash that allowed Ruth to travel in a railroad sleeping car, something Ruth normally would not be able to afford. Julius also outlined some of the basic information that was potentially valuable. He cautioned his sister-in-law to commit his questions to memory and to write nothing down. During her visit to Albuquerque, David enthusiastically supplied general information about Los Alamos, the individuals involved, and operational details. Unfortunately, security and discretion were virtually absent at the New Mexico facility, and Greenglass did not even have to resort to any clandestine behavior. Merely listening to his fellow technicians provided plenty of valuable information. Documents were left on desks and easy to peruse, if one so chose. Upon her return to New York, Ruth was visited in her apartment by Julius Rosenberg, who obtained whatever information his sister-in-law was able to remember. This visit was also witnessed by Ruth's sister, Dorothy Abel. David Greenglass returned to New York in January of 1945 on a two-week furlough, and during his time off he met frequently with his brother-in-law, even providing him with a sketch of a lens mold implosion model, the fundamental concept behind the device that triggered the atomic bomb. That this methodology was being implemented in the construction of the atomic bomb was of considerable espionage value. After a dinner party at his home, Julius Rosenberg reintroduced David and Ruth to a mutual acquaintance, Anne Sidorovich. When Anne left, Julius mentioned that Anne would serve as a courier from Albuquerque to New York, carrying any information that David Greenglass could glean during his tenure at Los Alamos. 
It was Ruth Greenglass's intent to relocate to Albuquerque for the duration of David's posting. Before leaving that evening, Ruth Greenglass received from Julius half of a diagonally cut jello box. This was to be used in the event that another courier needed to replace Anne. Both the Rosenbergs and Anne Sidorovich denied that these conversations ever took place, and the Greenglass allegations were adamantly denied during the Rosenbergs' eventual trial. David additionally claimed that during his furlough, Julius introduced him to an unidentified stranger who asked specific questions about design aspects of the models David observed or helped construct. By February of 1945, Ruth Greenglass moved to Albuquerque, got a job as a secretary, her husband able to visit on weekends from Los Alamos. After suffering a miscarriage, Ruth claimed that she received a comforting letter from Ethel Rosenberg with the additional admonition that a family member was to visit on the third or fourth Saturday in May. Code for a courier. Having previously agreed on a local supermarket as the spot of any interaction, Ruth appeared at the appropriate time. No one showed, but on June 3, 1945, a stranger knocked on the green glasses' apartment door. He produced the cutout jello box and asked for any information David was willing to provide. Greenglass told him to return in the afternoon, and when the man did so, he delivered a half-dozen pages of sketches and additional information about the atomic implosion device. The courier took the info and gave David Greenglass an envelope with $500. He promised to return in September, but Greenglass was able to travel again on furlough to New York, where he personally provided Julius Rosenberg with any additionally valuable information. Despite Rosenberg's request for Greenglass to remain in the Army and at Los Alamos, his brother-in-law had no intention of doing so. He wanted to return to New York and normal domestic life with his wife. Upon his return, David Greenglass joined the small engineering firm that Julius formed with David's brother, Bernard, and another Lower East Side neighbor, Isidore Goldstein. David was to actually fulfill machinist orders that Julius acquired through his contacts at the Signal Corps and even through individuals Julius knew through his political connections. Unfortunately, few orders ever materialized, and as time wore on, it was clear that Julius was more focused on his outside activities, while David, with a child of his own, cared much more about the financial needs of his family. After putting some of his own money into the business, David resorted to borrowing money from Julius just to make ends meet. But he became increasingly alarmed by Julius's penchant for discussing in general terms his clandestine activities and grandiose schemes for the future. By the end of 1949, he was openly asking Julius to buy him out of the partnership that they knew was going nowhere. Instead, Julius told him that he should be putting money aside because serious developments eventually would cause all of them to flee to Europe. Julius further explained that David and his entire family should get passports and visas for France as quickly as possible. Money to pay for such a trip would be provided, and once in Paris, Julius's espionage ring would take care of the rest. David left the meeting shaken. His wife was five months pregnant with their second child, and he was not about to even tell her something so alarming. Instead, he told his wife merely that Julius might be willing to sign a promissory note for David's share in the business. Although he found it hard to believe that he could be in jeopardy over something that occurred five years earlier, in late January, David Greenglass received a reality check on how potentially dangerous his situation might be. Out of the blue, two FBI agents showed up at his New York apartment while he was out. When he returned, Ruth told him of their visit, and in a panic, David contacted his brother-in-law. Julius told him calmly to just find out what the FBI wanted and provide as little information as possible. When the agents returned that afternoon, it turned out that they were investigating the petty theft of several hemispheres, small spherical devices that actually contained minimal amounts of uranium. Greenglass knew that these items were frequently stolen at Los Alamos as quirky souvenirs of the atomic age, and he in fact had such a device himself. But he denied knowing anything about or possessing any hemispheres, and the FBI accepted his explanation. After informing Julius of this outcome, 
David surreptitiously tossed his hemisphere into the East River, thinking that his brother-in-law's worst fears were completely unfounded. On February 2, 1950, physicist Klaus Fuchs was arrested in England. Fuchs was a German communist who fled the Reich in the early 30s. He relocated to Great Britain and eventually was interned in Canada after the outbreak of World War II. When the U.K. and U.S. began work on a potential nuclear weapon, Fuchs was repatriated to Britain and was an integral part of the research team that worked on the bomb. He was assigned to Los Alamos and was considered a valuable asset to the Manhattan Project. Unfortunately, he also remained a committed communist who routinely passed secrets and updates to Soviet intelligence. Although exactly how Fuchs was identified was unclear at the time, it is believed that he was compromised by decryption of Soviet cables that fell under the Venona Project, an American effort that successfully broke the code used for Russian intelligence agency communication. Fuchs quickly admitted to espionage and agreed to provide additional information. He interacted frequently with a courier that he did not know by actual name or address, but the FBI was already focused on investigating a large espionage group and eventually identified the courier he met with on numerous occasions. This individual, a man named Harry Gold, was unfortunately the same man who had visited the Green Glasses in Albuquerque. After Fuchs's arrest, Julius Rosenberg insisted to his in-laws that they were in grave danger and needed to flee to Mexico immediately. But David and Ruth were reluctant to leave the U.S. for many reasons. Ruth had seriously burned herself in a household accident while pregnant. She eventually gave birth without incident but required extensive hospitalization. David was forced to work as a machinist at night so that Ruth's sister could help take care of his young son. Discharged from the hospital on May 24, 1950, Ruth and her husband were confronted in their apartment in the late afternoon by Julius Rosenberg, waving a copy of a front-page tabloid blaring the news of the arrest of Harry Gold. Julius explained that this was the man who met with them in New Mexico and that their arrest was imminent. He outlined a plan that called for them to immediately flee to Mexico and eventually Sweden or Switzerland. When they balked, he offered them thousands of dollars if they would just leave the country as soon as possible. He also stated that he and Ethel intended to do the same thing. But unbeknownst to Julius, the Green Glasses had already made the decision to stay in the U.S. They had no intention of spending their lives behind the Iron Curtain and hoped to evade both Julius and law enforcement by hiding out in some remote part of the country. The next time David interacted with Julius, both men were under arrest. It did not take long for Harry Gold to crack under FBI pressure. Eventually, he admitted that he was a courier for Soviet intelligence and began cooperating with his captors, identifying photographs of individuals that he dealt with in the past. By mid-June, the Green Glasses correctly sensed that they were under government surveillance. In a belated attempt to engineer an escape plan, David took a bus to a tiny town in the Catskills and, upon arrival, discovered that two plain-clothed individuals had followed him all the way from New York. Understanding that hiding out was impossible, Greenglass returned to New York City, hoping that perhaps they might not arrest him after all. However, on June 15, 1950, the FBI showed up at the Green Glass apartment, which they thoroughly searched and then requested an interview at FBI headquarters. Initially, the discussion was nonchalant and conversational, but when Harry Gold positively identified photos seized by the FBI in Green Glass's apartment as the couple he interacted with in Albuquerque, David was confronted with this information. Within minutes, he crumbled. Desperate to keep his wife from any legal retribution, Greenglass agreed to confess to everything he knew as long as his wife wasn't prosecuted. Otherwise, he claimed, he would kill himself. He subsequently signed a three-page confession that first brought Julius Rosenberg to the attention of federal authorities. Immediately, the New York office of the FBI attempted to locate Rosenberg and place him under surveillance. Greenglass was then formally arrested and spent the night in the offices of the FBI. 
With his one phone call, he contacted his brother-in-law and told him to tell his wife, still in the hospital, that he was under arrest, but not to worry. The next morning, the FBI detained Julius Rosenberg for questioning, even confronting him with his brother-in-law's accusation that Julius had worked with him to commit espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union. Julius denied the charge repeatedly, even telling his FBI interrogators that he would call David Greenglass a liar to his face. After hours of interrogation, Julius was allowed to leave, and he immediately sought legal counsel. Through his union contacts, he met with Emanuel Manny Block, a prominent defense attorney involved with several high-profile cases involving civil rights and left-wing causes. It was probably not a coincidence that Block had close ties to the attorney believed to be representing David Greenglass, John Rogge. As any attempt by Greenglass to cooperate with the government greatly affected Julius Rosenberg's situation, this relationship was critical. For the moment, Julius Rosenberg remained a free man. However, he was under 24-hour surveillance. With a family that he would never desert, even if he and his Soviet handlers wanted to extricate him from harm, such flight was unthinkable. There was another explanation for Julius not fleeing the country, that he was innocent and had done nothing wrong. Julius's respite did not last long. Extensive subsequent information provided by both David and Ruth Greenglass in the days immediately after Greenglass's arrest distinctly outlined Julius Rosenberg's alleged extensive espionage activity, so much so that the FBI was able to convince the Justice Department to obtain an arrest warrant. At approximately 8 p.m. on July 17, 1950, he was arrested at his Knickerbocker Village apartment in front of his wife and children. When Ethel asked to see a warrant and permission to call an attorney, she was told to shut up and take her children to a back bedroom. However, her subsequent decision to allow the press into her apartment and speak at length about her husband's innocence, including the denial that neither she or her husband were communists and didn't even know any communists, was less astute. With the FBI quickly able to ascertain that this was not true, the focus on Ethel as an accessory and potential leverage to force a confession crystallized. Other than the green glasses assertions, any case against Ethel was non-existent. In such a high-profile case, J. Edgar Hoover got involved, insisting that an arrest and possible prosecution of Ethel Rosenberg be undertaken to unravel what was believed to be a sizable espionage ring. But Hoover was not the only typically grandstanding public official involved in the case. Irving Saypol, a high-profile U.S. attorney who had already successfully prosecuted various communists in the late 40s, understood that an arrest of Ethel Rosenberg would be a major media event. Ethel Rosenberg had appeared once before on August 8th to answer questions in front of a grand jury. Knowing that the case against Julius was the flimsy accusations of the green glasses, Ethel repeatedly pled the Fifth Amendment to avoid providing anything incriminating. Only three days later, Ethel was summoned again and asked very similar questions. This time, upon leaving the courthouse, Ethel Rosenberg was detained by FBI agents and arrested on the same charges lodged against Julius, conspiracy to commit espionage. This arrest was so abrupt that Ethel was unable to contact Manny Block and instead wound up being represented by the attorney's father, Alexander Block. The elder Block remained Ethel's attorney of record throughout her legal travails, effectively assuring her that she and her husband's defense strategy was identical and formulated by Manny Block, an eventual handicap. Alexander Block also protested the excessive bail, which was set at $100,000, effectively preventing Ethel from making arrangements for child care and forcing her to inform her sons by telephone that she could not return home. Upon hearing this, her seven-year-old son Michael let out an agonizing scream that is said to have haunted Ethel for the rest of her life. What subsequently befell the Rosenberg children underlined the demarcation already drawn within the Greenglass family. Ethel had always had a contentious relationship with her mother, Tessie, unlike her baby brother, nicknamed early in life as Davy. When the neighbor babysitting Michael and Robert Rosenberg understood that Ethel was not returning from court after her arraignment, she delivered the children to Tessie. 
already embittered about her son's predicament, which she blamed squarely on Julius Rosenberg, she contacted Emmanuel Block and told him that she was too old and too poor to take care of the children. If he didn't find some other alternate caretaker, she threatened to drop the children off at the police station. All of Ethel's siblings were also either hostile or urged her to cooperate with the government. Julius Rosenberg's siblings also kept their distance, and eventually the two boys were dispatched to the Hebrew Children's Home, an orphanage in the Bronx. Ethel refused any visits from her children, believing that having them see her behind bars would scar them permanently. If the federal government expected Ethel to betray her husband or Julius to begin naming names, they were mistaken. This did not stop the FBI from attempting to identify and locate anyone who might be part of the Rosenberg's espionage circle. This included former CCNY associates, especially those who are now involved in technical military research, even peripherally. Max Elicher was just such a person, an engineer who had worked on various projects involving armaments or electronic weaponry. Currently employed by the Reeves Instrument Company in a project involving radar, Elicher was hired through the efforts of a close friend and colleague, Morton Sobel, who also worked at Reeves and lived literally adjacent to Elicher in a modest home in Flushing, Queens, New York. Sobel and Elicher commuted to work together, but upon David Greenglass's arrest, Sobel absented himself from the workplace and even asked Elicher to pick up his paycheck and a suit from a local dry cleaner. On June 23, 1950, Sobel, as well as his entire family, disappeared. A month later, and shortly after Julius's arrest, the FBI came to Elicher's workplace to ask him about his potential involvement with espionage. Terrified, he explained that while Julius Rosenberg aggressively attempted to recruit him, or at least get him to pass along sensitive information, Elicher never did. Figuring that the FBI probably suspected, or was at least investigating, Morton Sobel, Elicher admitted that Rosenberg, as early as 1944, mentioned that Sobel was already passing information to Julius, and Elicher himself had observed Sobel on at least one occasion handing a film canister directly to Julius Rosenberg in the latter's Knickerbocker Village apartment. If Morton Sobel justifiably understood that he needed to leave the U.S. as quickly as possible, his attempt to escape was handicapped by a lack of basic necessities, most notably passports for himself, his wife, and two children. In 1950, Americans could readily cross into Mexico by obtaining a tourist card. Other individuals under suspicion during the same time period used Mexico as a transit point to make their escape to Europe and beyond. The FBI quickly established that Sobel and his family flew from LaGuardia Airport to Mexico City on June 22nd. How exactly the Sobels were located in Mexico has never been divulged by American law enforcement. But on August 16th, unable to book passage out of Mexico by freighter to any destination, the family was enjoying a quiet dinner in their Mexico City apartment when three armed men, screaming in Spanish, broke down the door. Proclaiming that Sobel was wanted for a bank robbery in Acapulco, the assailants lifted him out of the apartment and dragged him down the stairs to the street and into a waiting automobile. Two of the men then returned to the apartment, told the rest of the family to take whatever they could carry, and forced them into a second car. The two cars left the city and headed north, eventually joined by a caravan of vehicles that drove nonstop to Laredo, Texas. Sobel was forced to cross the International Bridge at the Mexican-Texas border, where he was arrested by the FBI and charged with conspiracy to commit espionage with Julius Rosenberg. His wife and two children were left to fend for themselves, although they eventually made it back to New York City. Despite Irving Saypol publicly stating that Sobel was an atomic spy suspect, Sobel had nothing to do with any information or research involving the atomic bomb, his focus also similar to Elicher's. He also refused to cooperate or implicate anyone else, despite Saypol's intimidation tactics, any connection to revealing atomic secrets, an extremely serious offense. 
Just how serious became evident when the DOJ began laying the groundwork for seeking the death penalty against Julius Rosenberg, going so far as meeting with the Atomic Energy Commission to allow for the declassification of certain information that would allow David Greenglass to specifically and publicly testify as to the nature and gravity of what he passed to his brother-in-law. The FBI also placed Greenglass and Harry Gold on the 11th floor of the infamous Tombs, the jailhouse that housed pretrial defendants in the New York City area, the floor a segregated unit for individuals cooperating with the government, a.k.a. snitches. For the six months leading up to the trial, both Greenglass and Gold's confessions were reviewed personally by both individuals with members of the DOJ and FBI. Gradually, subtle differences emerged, especially concerning David Greenglass's recollections of the role Ethel Rosenberg played in collating information. David now alleging that Ethel actually typed up notes passed to Julius in the Rosenberg's living room. This allegation was corroborated at about the same time independently by Ruth Greenglass in interviews with the FBI. It was this change in the allegations involving Ethel Rosenberg that allowed Sapel and the prosecution to seek the death penalty against her as well. Even so, executing a defendant for conspiracy was unprecedented in U.S. history. Treason was not a potential charge because secrets were passed to an ally of the U.S. at the time, the Soviet Union during World War II. On March 6, 1951, the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and Morton Sobel began. As always, the Rosenbergs were transported to court in a specially outfitted van that separated female and male defendants with a wire screen down the center. Although the Rosenbergs were nationally notorious and mostly reviled in the media, they had achieved a certain measure of respect from the jailhouse population who were impressed by their decision not to rat out their associates despite facing a death sentence. The couple were routinely allowed to sit in close proximity to each other in the van, the other occupants allowing them at least this brief moment of private interaction. Because of the crush of spectators and media, the van did not drop them off in front of the U.S. Federal District Courthouse at 40 Foley Square, but instead headed for a more discreet entrance at the rear of the building. The courtroom chosen for the trial was the largest in the courthouse, still not expansive enough to permit access to all of those hoping to witness a proceeding generating worldwide attention. Although Morton Sobel's wife, Helen, showed up every day, there was no relative or even friend present in support of the Rosenbergs. Their siblings and relatives all refused to have anything to do with them, either united behind the green glasses or too terrified to appear sympathetic. The judge assigned to preside over the trial was Irving Kaufman, an individual who used his political connections, including J. Edgar Hoover, to get himself appointed to hear the case. For any judge seeking advancement within the federal judicial system, such a case was a plum assignment at the height of the Cold War. Accompanying Irving Sapol at the prosecution table were his assistants James Kilsheimer and Roy Cohn, the ultimately notorious participant in the Army-McCarthy hearings and a fixture in New York legal, political, and social circles for the next four decades. Kaufman presided over jury selection, quickly selecting a panel in 36 hours. Jurors were asked about potential involvement with CCNY, numerous political organizations with leftist leanings and negative opinions about the death penalty. Any affirmative responses resulted in disqualification. Jurors were also asked about their feelings concerning the House Un-American Activities Committee, the use of nuclear weapons, the implementation of loyalty oaths as a condition of employment, and even the obligation of the U.S. to provide other countries with information about atomic weapons. Individuals expressing doubts about all but the latter issue were also disqualified. The jury that was eventually impaneled consisted of 11 men and one woman, a development that possibly did not bode well for Ethel Rosenberg. Additionally, despite the fact that the trial took place in the center of the city of New York, there was not one Jewish individual on the panel. Also problematic, as a housewife and mother of two children, more females might have been reluctant to convict and possibly subject such a defendant to execution.
Within minutes of beginning his opening argument, Irving Sapel launched an attack on the Rosenbergs as not loyal to the United States, but loyal instead to the cause of international communism. Despite Emanuel Bloch's vigorous objection that communism was not on trial, Judge Kaufman's ruling to allow such a declaration was an ominous moment that indicated that the judge was hostile to a basic premise of the Rosenberg defense, namely that it was not who they were that was on trial, but what they had actually done. In 1951 America, the ability to consistently mention their leftist beliefs automatically made them very unappealing defendants. Sapol was even able to characterize the Rosenbergs' behavior as treason, a crime they were not charged with, and a much more specific and serious legal accusation, unprovable in a time period in which the U.S. was not at war with the Soviet Union. As its first witness, the prosecution called Max Elicher to the stand. If Elicher was reluctant to testify against both former co-workers and acquaintances, his enthusiasm was certainly burnished by the government potentially charging him with perjury when he omitted his Communist Party membership while undergoing a security clearance investigation necessary to allow his involvement with U.S. Navy weapons research. The government prosecuted individuals throughout the 40s and 50s for far more innocuous behavior, and Elicher understood that his own freedom was closely tied to his testimony in the Rosenberg case. Much of Elicher's testimony revolved around Julius and Sobel unsuccessfully attempting to get him to provide sensitive information, but he specifically described Sobel's delivery of a film can to Rosenberg, all the while explaining his communist motivation to Elicher and his determination to help the Soviet Union. Elicher's unexpected specifics were not only a blow to the defense, they were personally shocking to Helen Sobel, who, while selling her household furniture to raise money for her husband's legal defense, had agreed to exchange her daughter's piano and some of her other household items for the Elicher's half-ownership of their communal washing machine. Having made this bargain in October of 1950, Helen had no idea that Elicher was fully cooperating with the government at the time, the FBI having explained that his cooperation was to remain a complete secret. Despite a lengthy cross-examination that elicited details of Elicher's previous perjury, the defense was unable to disparage the witness's damaging testimony. Ethel and Julius were resolved to remain as impassive as possible during the proceeding. This was probably difficult during the next witness's appearance. Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, having already pled guilty, he was awaiting sentencing scheduled to take place after his appearance at the Rosenberg trial. He not only was concerned with the length of his own sentence, he was hoping to avoid the prosecution of his wife, Ruth, who had not been charged with any crime thus far. Because Roy Cohn played a major part in the lengthy debriefing and coaching sessions that shaped Greenglass's testimony, he was assigned to question the witness, beginning with information about David's personal and educational background. When Cohn then shifted to questions concerning the political beliefs of the Rosenbergs, Manny Block objected. Judge Kaufman denied the objection and allowed this testimony concerning the defendant's long-term adherence to communist doctrine and beliefs dating back to 1935. David Greenglass then testified about efforts to convince his wife to induce David to turn over sensitive information during his posting at Los Alamos. Greenglass claimed that Ethel Rosenberg, during social events in her home, explained to Ruth that the couple no longer engaged in political demonstrations and activity because Julius was now actively involved in obtaining and transmitting sensitive information to the Soviet Union. Julius then explained to Ruth that clearly David was working on the atomic bomb project, and he hoped that Ruth could convince her husband to reveal secrets about the Los Alamos operation. When Ruth resisted, David Greenglass attempted to describe Ethel's determination to convince her to help. He was interrupted by Manny Block's objection, this time sustained as hearsay, but the jury had at least partially heard the damaging allegation that Ethel was fully involved in the conspiracy. Court recessed for the weekend, but Greenglass returned to the stand the following Monday. Ethel and Julius must have spent several long days pondering what other damaging information David would impart. On Monday, Greenglass discussed his January 1945 trip to New York 
and his presentation of a drawing of the lens mold used during the atomic bomb's implosion process. Cohn attempted to introduce into evidence a copy of Greenglass's sketch, composed while incarcerated, as the original was given to Julius. Manny Block strenuously objected to this process, as the drawing presented was not actually given to Julius. But after David's testifying that this drawing was a reasonable copy of what he composed, Block's objection was overruled. David also again fully implicated his sister by claiming that she retyped his notes, Greenglass's handwriting so bad that Ethel indicated that it was illegible. This was a shift in David's original grand jury version of events that omitted any mention of Ethel retyping this information. Greenglass then recounted the dinner with Anne Sidorovich, followed subsequently by Julius cutting up a jello box to be presented by whatever courier eventually showed up in New Mexico. Cohn then dramatically produced a jello box and had Greenglass cut it in the same manner as Julius. The pieces then presented to the jury for their inspection. This despite, again, the material presented as evidence having nothing to do with the original item in question. David concluded with additional statements from Ethel, indicating either participation or encouragement conveyed to Ruth Greenglass to convince her husband to provide valuable intelligence. Throughout Greenglass's testimony, Ethel remained completely impassive, an outlook that media described as a possible sign of guilt, as such damaging information, especially presented by a sibling, should have evoked feelings of outrage and a pronounced emotion, unless they were true. During cross-examination, Manny Block asked many effective questions about Greenglass's potential deal with the government, attempting to get him to admit that his testimony might result in the execution of his own sister and that he had altered his story to absolve his own wife. But it remained to be seen how the jury would react. Ruth Greenglass was then called to the stand. Questioned by Sapol's other assistant, James Kilsheimer, she reiterated much of what her husband had already discussed. She also added information about money given to them by Julius, sums involving as much as $4,000 in an attempt to convince them to flee to Mexico. This was a very large amount of cash in 1950 and would not have been possible for Julius to obtain on his own. The clear inference that Rosenberg could have only acquired this amount of money from his Soviet handlers. Ruth also added accounts of visits after David's arrest in which she alleged that Ethel tried to encourage her to convince David not to cooperate. Both Manny and Alexander Block tried to challenge key aspects of her testimony, but Ruth left the witness stand mostly unscathed. The Greenglass's well-rehearsed appearances extremely damaging to the defense. A succession of witnesses were then presented by the prosecution to buttress this testimony. Ruth Greenglass's brother-in-law, Louis Abel, testified that he had received $3,900 from David Greenglass, money he was told that had come from Julius Rosenberg. Harry Gold, currently serving a 30-year sentence in a federal penitentiary after a guilty plea, then described his interactions with the Greenglasses, specifically outlining his visit to Albuquerque and the presentation of his jello box cutout. He also specifically cited the password, I come from Julius, a damaging statement the jury could easily accept as specific evidence tying Julius Rosenberg to a conspiracy. Strangely, neither defense attorney cross-examined Gold, if only to make it clear that espionage agents would never use their actual names in this manner. But perhaps they both considered Gold so damaging that they hoped to get him off the stand as quickly as possible. Next to appear was Elizabeth Bentley. Bentley was already a prominent media figure, an anti-communist, who, despite her American background, was once a Soviet spy and lover of Jacob Golos, a central figure in Soviet espionage until his death from a heart attack in 1943. Bentley assumed control of the Golos espionage network, but in 1945, her disillusion with communism, erratic personal life, and potential legal jeopardy prompted her to defect and cooperate with the FBI. Bentley offered little specific information concerning the Rosenbergs, however her knowledge concerning the allegiance to American communists to the Soviet Union and her assertion that any American Communist Party member would absolutely and eagerly attempt to help Russian interests above all was admitted into evidence, despite Bloch's repeated objections. 
With that, the prosecution rested their case on the afternoon of Friday, March 16th, without calling a lengthy list of potential technical witnesses who could scientifically corroborate how damaging the information transmitted ultimately to Julius Rosenberg actually was. This was in accordance with SAPOL's strategy to keep the case simple and to not involve the jury in complicated and lengthy scientific testimony. Figuring that they had several days to at least prepare their own case, Manny and Alexander Block protested that the weekend was not enough time to prepare and that Ethel and Julius were typically unavailable during weekends. Kaufman rejected their request for more time, but did at least allow access after Friday's proceeding was concluded. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books, The Rosenberg File, A Search for the Truth by Ronald Radosh and Joyce Milton, Ethel Rosenberg, An American Tragedy by Anne Seba, and The Brother by Sam Roberts. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com, as well as information about my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Thank you.